ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com For a long time, I saw success as a a, a sort of finish line, a a destination. If, If I worked hard enough, achieved enough, accumulated enough of something, I'd get there, cross it, done. Welcome to episode 57 of the Adventure Podcast. This episode is the third full release of our mini-series for Kendall Mountain Festival in association with Yeti. We've partnered with KMF to put together four incredible stories of adventure and exploration. I've known Ben Saunders for a few years now, and he's become a really close friend. We regularly work together and have had scores of long conversations about a multitude of different things. Um, Ben has also appeared on the podcast before, when we released our Solitude specials in the first COVID lockdown. But this is the first time we've released a long-form conversation with him. For those who don't know who Ben is, he's an explorer, uh, endurance athlete and renowned speaker. He holds the record for the longest polar journey on foot, and he's skied over 7,000 kilometres in the polar regions. In this conversation, Ben talks about these journeys as well as his early inspirations, motivations and the search for positive role models. Before we dive into the chat with Ben, um, I'd like to talk quickly about the festival. There's an unbelievable wealth of films, uh, interviews, etc. online and it's all available to watch and enjoy in a variety of different formats. Uh, depending on whether you'd like an all-access pass or a single ticket for an individual session. All of the amazing Kendall content will also be online until the end of December, so you've got plenty of time to check it out and enjoy as much of it as you can. You can actually get 20% off absolutely any of the sessions by using the code ADVENTURE20 at checkout, Uh, all capital letters and all one word. So just go to kendallmountainfestival.com to get involved. And finally, uh, this series has been filmed rather than just audio recorded. So if you'd like to get a little bit more up close and personal with these guests and these conversations, then you can watch them in full on the Yeti Basecamp on the KMF website. If you're enjoying this series but are new to the Adventure Podcast, then you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Acast, um, anywhere else that you get podcasts and hit the magic subscribe button. Okay, over to Ben Saunders. We, it's probably worth noting we've had these sorts of chats a lot before, um, both on camera and off camera. Um, 
but this is the first time we've released a Ben podcast that wasn't something short and quick and sweet. Gosh. Um, <laughs> yeah, which seems odd given how long we've spoken for. I've, I've made it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You've made it now. Um, so I think a cool place to start would be to just, I guess, ask, did you always know you were going to be a polar explorer? <laughs> uh no is the very short answer i I, i'm trying to think when i first started like seriously thinking slash dreaming of doing one expedition and it was probably late teens working up in scotland free up in the highlands and um that's i remember reading i read a few books i read mind over matter ralph fines mike stroud crossing antarctica read a couple of rob rob swan's books footsteps of scott and that's when I said, so I must have been 18, 19. And that's when I was when I started thinking, God, that would be really cool to do a trip. I don't, I think at that point I, I, I had no idea or even you know, desire that this would become a career. I just didn't think that'd be possible. I, I, and yeah, the, the, the dream then was sort of one big trip. And, and actually the first big trip went so badly wrong the only way I could think of like getting out of the hole that I dug myself was doing another trip. So of my 12 big expeditions, like the first two, three wheel, it's a Ponzi scheme where I'm paying off the debt from the first one by raising sponsorship for the second one. So I didn't, yeah, at the outset, I didn't, I, I wanted to do a trip. It definitely, uh, I was just really into it. Loved reading about this stuff, fascinated by it. Um, thought it'd be a cool things to do, but yeah, didn't think it'd be a career for sure. Cool. I think we'll come back to the whole <laughs> failures and things like that. But is polar explorer the right term? I know. I, I'm still stuck on that. I, I, I don't know what to have been doing for 20 years now. I don't know what to call myself. I, I normally say that I lead polar expeditions, and then people go, "Who do you lead?" And I'm like, "Well, on my own sometimes." So, you know, and they're like, "Oh, who do you take? Do you take scientists?" I'm like, no, not really. Um, do you take for clients? No, just occasionally mates. Um, sometimes on my own. So I don't know. I'm often envious of you know mountaineers or sailors or you know whatever because it's quite got quite simple job titles. But yeah, I don't know. Explorer sounds a bit grand. Long distance skier, maybe. <laughs> I think that maybe there's a misconception or about who you are and what you've done, especially in <laughs> early day, like early childhood things like that. What do you think people perceive your life was like as a young man and? in terms of, you know, social status. And yeah, interesting. I, th I think people assume I'm way more posh than I actually am. And and, and that was partly because my mum remarried when I was, uh, I can't remember, 10? No. Yeah. No, maybe I was younger than that. I don't know. I was a kid. Seven, eight, you know, I can't remember. Long time ago. And uh, remarried. So my stepdad, they were together about 10 years. He was... Um, from not not that old money but was from money and and suddenly you know my dad uh, was a bricklayer my mum married him in her late teens dirt poor he was an orphan no no fat nothing no family on his side um mum was a working as a secretary and a typist at down in plymouth for wrigley's chewing gum <laughs> and and uh, so there's like no money as a kid and then suddenly we had a little bit of a taste of what that world was like and then it all ended again when they when they divorced so i had this sort of weird childhood where um i was sort of exposed to so many different extremes and even when my dad was still on the scene we'd sort of he'd come and pick us up for the weekend in his rusty mini metro and take my brother and, and me down to back down to the bed sit he was living in in plymouth then we'd go to his 
country and western band practice at the you know some working men's club in Denport Dockyards and then the next weekend we'd be with my stepdad's family and there'd be some drinks party somewhere in some enormous house and so I, I was exposed to the, like both ends of that spectrum and I'm really grateful for that but and I definitely must have realized at an early age how people treated my stepdad differently because he sounded different and I, I read I don't know who said this or where I saw it but I read a long time ago that in, in certainly in the UK there's more prejudice attached to accent than there is to skin colour and I, I so so my, my, my poshness is entirely borrowed <laughs> and I'm state school through and through don't have a degree no family money no, no silver spoon sadly but neither I or my mum got any of my stepdad's money so I don't talk to him now so <laughs> He didn't so yeah, you. so 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 self-made man in in some respects, but but I also I've been kind of banging that drum for years. Like I made my own luck, made it all happen myself, raised all the money. You know, no one's given me a penny, um, and I've I've come to realise recently. And there's a lot of obviously there's lots of talk about privilege, and there's lots of nonsense being said about that. But something I realised only only in the last couple of years really is actually how much of what I take for granted had nothing to do with my hard work. It was complete luck that I was born in England and not in Burundi or North Korea or you know or wherever. Um, and I forget who coined the term the, the ovarian lottery, but um, you know, being born in the UK was a was a big win and I had nothing to do with that. So I've only recently kind of mellowed a bit on that front and um, for years like oh, I did it all myself and now I'm like, oh actually pretty lucky. It's a mix of the two, right? <laughs> mix of the two. Like, you've got to play the cards you're given, I think. Yeah. And to what extent was your childhood and the way that your parents were, the way that your life was, instrumental in you inevitably going on big trips and needing adventure? Yeah. I, I think I think the instrumental thing was that I grew up basically without knowing my dad. Um, and my stepdad we never, wasn't a very good 10 years, never very close to him. All a bit turbulent, so I there was this kind of big blank space where I guess as a as a boy I was looking for a, a, a template for what it meant to become a man, and, and my so the kind of role models and heroes that I chose came out of books and magazines and whatever else you know, and it was people like Scott and Shackleton and Hamilton and Nansen and Ralph Fiennes and Chris Bollington, Doug Scott, Robert Swan, all of those characters. So so they were my heroes as as a as a boy and and i think now looking back like yeah they're almost laughably overblown caricatures of like macho male achievement you know kind of man on mountain with beard and flag and big boots you know conquering the mountain or you know whatever nonsense so but that but that's they were the people i looked up to as as a as a kid because they seemed like the sort of people i wanted to become they were you know, proficient and accomplished and praised and famous and, you know, um, hard, tough. Uh, so I, th- I think, you know, as a boy, young man, teenager, whatever, I, I you know, I, I kind of wanted to do the sorts of things that they'd done, perhaps in the hope that I became those things too, or that other people thought those things about me. I think there was a lot of ego involved like early on sort of setting out on my career early early 20s and a lot of a lot of desire for 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 sort of external validation and and acclaim and and acknowledgement so i think that's where the roots of it are 
Is that still present? Mm, hmm. I think I've, I've, I've. It's really interesting. I remember sort of being eighteen, thinking, "Oh, by the time I'm twenty-six, I'm gonna have a house, family, kids." Forty-three now, married, own a house, finally, no kids yet. So I'm like late, late starter in some respects. But I also think, you know, in certainly in my late teens, I thought I was pretty switched on, and I thought I understood myself pretty well. And and now, age forty-three, I'm like, "Oh, I only still just." just learning about my only just really becoming like properly self-aware and I think there's been probably over over several years this sort of gradually uh I guess kind of transcending my own ego and that probably sounds really pretentious but but just sort of realizing that and and the big trip I did in Antarctica 2013-2014 my, my teammate great friend Tarka was um a really good influence on me in that respect because he doesn't care what anybody thinks of him and he is super low profile he's not on social media not on, there's nothing about he that would hate doing an interview like this he's just not doesn't like talking about himself and doesn't care what anybody thinks of him he's incredibly driven and has this incredible sort of internal compass um but doesn't care what other people think what other people think yeah so he was a good influence on me because I, I think I wanted that trip to make me famous. I wanted to come back and get a medal, you know, and that didn't happen. And um, and that was tough for my for my ego. And then I gradually realised that we'd we'd done something so weird at the at the top end of such a peculiar and incredibly narrow niche that that to expect the, the press or the layperson to appreciate why our trip was any different to any other expedition in Antarctica was, was, was ludicrous but it took a long time for me to appreciate that and, and, and also I think the other thing that happened in parallel was was finally appreciating I, th I think I for a long time I saw success as a, a, a sort of finish line a, de a destination if, if I worked hard enough, achieved enough accumulated enough of something I'd get there, cross it, done like life will be awesome and there was a you know a very definite finish line at the end of that big trip in, in February 2014 back at the coast of Antarctica. And we stepped across it and nothing really happened. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. I've been working my butt off for 15 years to get here. And it's like oh, a bit disappointing. Like, and, and also, what, what the hell do I do now? The, you know, we're sort of, the, the narrative we're all told is, you know, kind of aim as hard as you can, follow your dreams, poof, but... When you get there and the dream comes true, you're like, oh, oh what, okay, wait, what, what do I do now? So that was a, that was a good, that was like a seminal experience, um, achieving the biggest goal I ever set myself, and it not, not, and nothing really changed. Um, so I think my, I think my view of su like what success means to me has changed massively, even quite recently. And I think I used to see it as success was achieving your goal. And now I see success as, as something more like continuing to strive well, you know, and, and continue to evolve and grow and learn like that success. And I can't really say it, and I'm probably paraphrasing enormously. I think it was Ray Dalio, of all people, billionaire hedge fund manager in, in his one of his books, his book, Principles. He said, so this is about success, something like 
you know, imagine the, the the biggest goals you have right now. It could be to make X amount of money. It could be to do a certain, you know, first ascent. It could be to you know, run a marathon in, in whatever time. And then imagine that happens tomorrow. Like you're given everything you need and, and it happens. Like it might be fulfilling for a little bit, but you'd soon want something else to pursue. So, so like for me, I've finally realized that, that contentment and happiness, I guess, doesn't lie in achieving goals. It lies in the, in the, in the, struggle in the journey in the striving so gosh long answer <laughs> no it's brilliant i think that's yeah i'm trying to nail that to my wall at the minute with varying degrees of success and i still i mean to come back to the ego thing i still i, I like i'm not claiming that i'm now some kind of zen monk who, who is not affected by what other people say about me or think about me like that's that's not true for a second but i've i've it was interesting back in I guess 2012 2013 when we it started to look like this big trip the, the squat expedition was going to happen and we had the money and I started to talk about it and this was like super early days like Instagram wasn't around Twitter was was around but it wasn't a big thing I can't Facebook probably around I don't I can't remember um but there are a few of the British newspapers like national newspapers published stories about this expedition and a lot of them people leave comments like Daily Mail, Telegraph, you know, whatever it was. And um, and the amount of, of abuse, like trolling in, in those comments was, that knocked me sideways at the time. I was, I was astonished by that. People, complete strangers, didn't know me from Adam, had read this article and decided to write something terrible about me um, or about what I was trying to do. And that really, that really affected me at the time. And I think, again, it took a little while to realise that, that that you know that I was publicly telling a story of you know what what ostensibly was my dream coming true really cool thing happening to me and I think for a lot of people their dreams aren't coming true and their lives are pretty rough and 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 you know writing an anonymous comment on a, on the internet or on social media is, is a way of venting that so I eventually realized that the sort of abuse I was getting and there wasn't loads of it. I'm not a celebrity but there was there was a bit and it upset me um, that that was nothing to do with me. It was it was a reflection of of their lives and how they were getting on and what they were up to, and it was just projection. So, so I've I've become a lot more thick skinned and a lot better at kind of pausing bef before I react to something that's said about me. Um, and the other interesting thing is is when it comes when negativity comes from people that are close to you or that you know, your friends, your family, and, and that's harder to deal with. And I think eventually I realized, and I think I borrowed this from someone else, I think it was Felix Dennis wrote about this in his, in his book. Um, he said that, you know, of course, people, if they care about you, they don't want to see you in, in harm's way. And this is, I'm talking about, you know, pursuing big goals, big dreams, daft expeditions. He's of course they, they don't want to see you put in, in harm's way. So this is coming from a place of, of care and, and concern. But he said also they're probably fearful that that you know if you succeed, it'll expose their own timidity. And and, and I was like, oh, there's something there as well. So um, you know, I, I my stepdad, I remember him you know, came back from my first North Pole attempt, two thousand one, twenty three. We didn't get to the North Pole. Travelling with Penn had a two thirds of the way there, and he, you know, he was just like, "Well, told you so." 
stupidest thing you've ever done like you know if, if you, you've come back in debt like you're an idiot like if you I don't know how you ever thought you were going to make money out of this yeah so I, I I think I've had also like a bit of a kind of a I don't know if I can swear I won't swear a bit of a sort of fu factor like if I'm told I can't do something or it's impossible or I'm not able to do it not capable to do it I'm like part of me is like right watch this <laughs> so I don't know how healthy that is but that's 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 been part of motivation over the years as well I mean that was going to be my question is is that healthy <laughs> I because it sounds I don't know maybe I'm just looking in the mirror when I ask this question but it sounds like you obviously had something to prove to the world when you were younger do you still have something to prove to the world now um, I, d I don't it's a tough question I don't think I've got anything to prove to the to the. I, I definitely did like that was where it came from in my early I think 21, 22, 23 like I, yeah I wanted and I think that was coming from a place of, of um, I don't know of, 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 of sort of lack and, and, and want for, for something you know 21 I had no job no degree no money family were all over the place parents had you know mum and stepdad had split up so everyone was you know um, and yeah part of me sort of if I'd if I'd been asked to, to, to kind of assess the quality of my life back then everything from the quality of my relationships to financial security to what I was, um, you know, giving back sounds a bit cheesy, but you know, but any, any of those metrics, like I would have scored myself like really low. Um, so yeah, for me, starting out, there was there was something to prove. I think to, to myself and to and to other people. Um, and I've, I'm at this weird stage now where I've kind of done the biggest things I wanted to do in in that world, polar expeditions. I've done the big stuff and. And I've also realised I actually don't. I'm trying to describe this. Like I, I, I think there must at some point there must have been this sort of inflection point where I had this decision. I could like, okay, I can I, I can I can carry on building this pedestal for myself, and I could go into TV, and I could write books, and I could sort of you know become a celebrity. Um, or is that what I really want? And I, I've sort of appreciated finally that I'm quite private in many ways, and I quite, I, I really um, relish like 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 not being a celebrity and not being spotted in the street, not being asked for autographs, and you know, um, and neither would I want that. And it's interesting how now nowadays, if I think of one or two characters who I won't name but are lucky enough to call friends I'd probably call them mentors as well if that doesn't sound too too um, conceited but people I look up to who are both several years older than me one of them's 11 years older than me um, I'm thinking of two characters one's a man one's a woman both incredibly successful in business uh, both made a lot of money both um, huge philanthropists big donors supporters of cool stuff and both incredibly private like they're, they're not on social media again they're just they're, they're, you know so so that it's weird how my own heroes have changed like fundamentally from from age 20 to age 43 um 
And I think the things that I aspire to now have changed enormously. So, yeah, I don't think I've got anything left to prove to the world, but I definitely have a story that I want to tell for the world, for as many people as possible. And, 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 and there are different strands to that story, but um, yeah. <laughs> and so to give this some context before I dive in, can you give us a brief overview of the polar journeys that you've taken undertaken yeah gosh uh so started out 2001 that was a north pole attempt from russia uh with pen haddo about a thousand kilometers should be about two months and i was 23 no idea what i was doing in hindsight i'd, I'd done a bit of climbing i'd ski touring in norway slept in a snow hole thought i was pretty tough and pretty hard and and was swiftly um, uh, and profoundly humbled by by this how how hard this was and the Arctic Ocean it was just I was just mind blowing um, you know minus forty eight first day ambient air temperature and, and you're walking over sea ice and it's really thin on the Russian side so it's scary everything's being round and there are polar bear footprints over and you think yeah wow so that was that was sort of baptism by 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 well maybe ice rather rather than fire but first trip two thousand one didn't get there. Went back. I did a shorter trip, 2003, but on my, on my own a couple of weeks. That was good. 2004, skied solo to the North Pole from Russia. Big trip, 72 days on my own. Um, 26. I can't remember what distance I covered, but it was it was the longest solo Arctic journey by Britain. Still hold that one. So that was a, that was like a milestone. I was like, oh, okay, right, tick to box. I've, I've sewn on this sort of metaphorical scout badge of like achievement. And also that, like around that time, was where things started going well, like finally. Um, and this is after several years of being completely skinned, uh, like hand to mouth, and and kind of living beyond my means, like renting a flat in London, but being desperately short of money and always getting in trouble with credit cards and you know overdrafts and whatever else. So there's this sort of really turbulent few years, and then Solo to North Pole, two thousand four. And the year after 2005, I spoke at the TED conference in, in, in back then. It was one event per year in Monterey, California. And they were interested in the fact that I'd, I'd been able to use, they don't even exist, I, don't, well, I might, might have it somewhere, but um, a, a PDA, like this little palm top, like precursor to a smartphone, ancient clunky thing. But we figured out a way to connect that to an Iridium satellite phone and, and send, you know, every night from my tent on the application, I'd send a little text diary entry and and the, like tiny really compressed jpeg like like all kind of bit mapped and blurred um but i was updating my website and so blogging from this trip and and it kind of went unnoticed in the uk but but the american press picked up on it and the new york times had a they used to have a tech supplement circuits and they put this one in the front page of that and then everything bananas and spoke to ted and that was cool timing because 26 had a world record solo from the pole pretty full of myself, rocked up in Monterey, like first person I played to was, was, I was like, what are you doing? She's like, oh, I'm working on curing malaria. You know? <laughs> Next person, what are you doing? Oh, I'm trying to get all of the schools and health centers in Ethiopia online. Um, oh, so I'm like, oh, I've just done a camping trip in the Arctic. Like, I used to think it was pretty, pretty difficult, but I, so it was, so that, I was 26 then, and that was 27 maybe, but that was perfect timing because it was, it was sort of simultaneously brought me down about 15 pegs and you know, ego was going back in its box, and but also it was really inspiring. So, uh, and then expedition-wise, there were three, there were a few trips to Greenland, five trips to Greenland between. Uh, I can't remember when I started, two thousand five maybe, and 2012, 2013. Um, 
and three North Pole attempts from the Canadian side. I was trying to set a speed record, trying to go solo, because no one had gone from both Canadian and the Russian side, the two the two style points, basically. Three attempts of that, none of them happened, none of them came off. Um, frustrating few years. And then Antarctica, big trip 2013-2014 with Tarka Le Pignier. Uh, we covered um, 1,800 miles, give or take, statute miles, 2,900k-ish. Um, from the coast to the South Pole, back to the coast again. So big trip. And then 2017, 2018, went back to Antarctica. I went solo to the South Pole from Berkner Island. So interesting route. And that's the last big trip. I've been back to Antarctica a few times, but not dragging a, dragging a sledge. <laughs> okay. And, I mean, I know the answer to this, but do you want to go back and drag sledges? <laughs> uh no, at the moment, it doesn't appeal to me really. I, I, I there's, there isn't a, a, a goal that is sufficiently exciting, motivating for me to, to, to want to do that again. And I'm, I'm almost more interested in, in kind of seeing who, who takes on the baton and, and like, how can I help them? And I, I, I really. Someone asked me a few weeks ago, like, well, do you think your record will be, will be broken? As in the distance that Tark and I covered, like that's still a record now. And, and I, was like, I, I really hope so. Um, and I'd love to, whoever's thinking about it, I'd love to help them get off the ground. But it do, doesn't appeal to me. Like I'm, I'm happy that we, I'm ge- genuinely happy that we raised that bar. Um, but I'm also happy to kind of step back a little bit now. <laughs> you know, it was, it was, absolute tunnel vision focus on one goal and th- and that was not conducive to a, a healthy perhaps even happy life in every other respect like it was it was sort of performance first and everything else came second and i don't want to live that way now so yeah was that true of the pre-trip the planning and the preparation oh yeah yeah it was mental it was t- it was ridiculous I, I i i often say it kind of felt like training for training for the olympics and trying to build our own stadium at the same time like the project managing the build of a stadium you know it's so such a complex trip and i think the reason it hadn't been done was the the logistics were really complex we spent a million dollars us dollars just on the flights like getting dropped off getting picked up really complex because we we needed a longer season than is, is sort of commercially catered for so we had to have you know our own aircraft to get in our own pilots our own fuel um we had to pay to keep a an airstrip open after the season had officially ended at thirty thousand dollars a day so 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 it was a really expensive trip and, and therefore it was you know commercially a really difficult challenge and and i often get you know messages from people on a, on a weekly basis, saying, well, I, you know, I really want, want to do a you know, solo to the South Pole or something. How do I, what, what kit should I buy? Or how do I get fit? I'm like, well, that's the kind of fun bit, but you, you've got to raise a lot of money to do it. You know? And that's the, that's, that's the really hard part. Like the, the expedition, buying a pair of boots and skis, that's a reward you know, for, the, for going through the, the really tough months, years. Right. Yeah. <laughs> do you think this is a deliberately difficult question? So I'm sorry. But do you think it's justifiable in the modern world to spend all that money on those trips? Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I think so. I've never even I've never even thought about it. I've never, um, I've never really reflected on that before now. I mean, I think it sounds like a lot of money, million dollars on flights. You know, that's absurd. I, I remember meeting through the TED conference another someone else I wouldn't name his name who was 
about my age, he was a Kiwi guy, about my age, a little bit older. And we, this was a, a TED thing in Oxford, 2000, summer 2005. And we ended up going for, going for a run one morning, got chatting. I thought, what do you do? He's like, oh, tech. Um, he'd founded and sold a business. I think he sold it in his either late 20s, early 30s for $150 million. And he, he, he was fascinating. He said to me at the time that he thought with 150 million he could change the world. And in his, whatever it was, late 20s. Um, and then he realized that 150 million dollars wasn't even a fraction of like New Zealand's education budget. It, it was actually tight in the, in the global scheme of things, a really small amount of money. So he ended up doing, uh, he, he does a lot of um, like microfinancing, so sort of seed funding to young, often young female entrepreneurs in, in kind of India and, and, and yeah, Southeast Asia. And, yeah. So that was fascinating for me to, to, to someone that had made a fortune beyond my wildest dreams, that he appreciated that, that, that eventually that wasn't actually much money in the grand scheme of things. And so a million dollars in flights might sound absurd, but it, it's 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 not much really, um, and yeah, and you could compare it to like, footballer salaries or whatever. Like I I think my sponsors got good value out of it, and and it was I don't think it was profligate. It was just what it cost to to do that. So yeah, it hasn't hasn't really troubled me before now. <laughs> well, no, and that's why I, you know I have deliberately ask difficult question and feel bad, but. <laughs> but to what extent do you think humans need adventure and endeavor? Uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, I think a big part of, I remember sort of early on, my first few big expeditions, and I part of me felt that I had to justify them somehow, and I had to support a charity, or I had to say I was doing something to do with climate change. Yeah, so I was trying to justify it, and then, and then. I remember thinking about um, Ellen MacArthur and she'd sailed on her own nonstop around the world a few years before I sort of was starting out. And um, and that that journey was like mega inspiration to me. But also it was this interesting case study for sponsors because, again, that's the hardest part, that actually someone young doing something on their own in a, in a really risky endeavor with no guarantee of, of, of success and lots and lots of chance of failure that that actually could work out commercially and be a really good deal for the sponsors. So that helped me enormously. But I remember, th and she then went on to start the Ellen MacArthur Foundation and, 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 um, and I often think that her, that that boat journey she did, which some might argue was an entirely selfish pursuit of, of, of individual accomplishment, like I often wonder, in terms of in terms of the, I guess the sort of value, like inspiring people, getting this sort of story out there, like how much good that did versus how good how much good her foundation's doing, and and, and the foundation's doing incredible, really important work, but that boat journey inspired me enormously, and I, I would imagine inspired a lot of other people. Um, so, I'm so nowadays I'm kind of okay with the fact that actually. My motivation was always uh, the goal that I'd chosen. That was the thing that was that was kind of, you know, where I was getting the energy and drive from. So uh, I've gone off a tangent. I forgot my question. Um. Well, no, 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 you answered it perfectly. I mean, it's the 
<laughs> something you just so, said about, about need, is this humans need adventure exploration uh, yeah uh, yes I, th I think it's I think it's also a kind of fundamental part of human nature like you've only got to put a toddler on the floor in a new room to see how they respond to the world around them like they want to go out and reach stuff and play with it and pull things off shelves and bite things and taste things and yeah so I think humans are we're kind of exploratory creatures by by nature and and I think also looking back at yeah, like school I did not do well at school and I wasn't I wasn't I didn't struggle I wasn't sort of profoundly dyslexic or anything but I equally did not respond well as a boy to being told to sit down in a room with the door closed windows closed sit still and remember what you are being told um, because someone else has been told to tell this to you um, that's that wasn't how I learned like I had to I had to get outside like like a toddler like kind of kind of engage with stuff and always have so I've not it's interesting I'm a terrible spectator I don't really follow sport at all occasionally we've just had a British win of the Giro d'Italia like I, and I know him from like super early days of cyclist so that's cool so I've watched a bit of that but beyond that I don't follow a football team I don't watch rugby I don't, I don't, I'm not I've got no idea I'm not sure I can name a single England player maybe Marcus Rashford is he England but he's all impressed so I, you know, I approve of him but I don't I'm not I don't I don't I don't follow sport I like doing stuff so I think humans um yeah we're exploratory beings and I also think that challenge like some form of resistance is is really really important in in, in terms of human whatever you call it growth you know as individuals like there's, there's got to be some something to push against so where's the line between adventure and human performance for you uh, i would say i mean my my, my expeditions have been um almost purely well certainly the later ones I mean the first one or two like the first one with pen complete out of my depth like that was proper adventure it was just super steep learning curve um, but then when I went back for a couple of weeks on, on my own on the Arctic Ocean realised I could do it went back 2004 like then it started becoming about human performance and, and I I I've, I've often said over the years, like I'm, I can't claim to be an explorer in, in the in the Edwardian sense. I've never drawn a map, I've never named a glacier, but f so for me, I, I was almost a, a, a. I saw myself as a peculiar kind of athlete for a long time. Like that was what excited me. Um, what am I capable of achieving as a, as a as a you know animal that's capable of feats of endurance? Like how far can I push this? Um, and I think adventure is. Of course, these were all big, grand adventures. Every every one of these trips, but I think I think adventure is much more to do. And I'm trying to think how to sort of say this without descending into cliche. But um, I often worry that I've I've perpetrated this this idea that you know you need to go to the Arctic or Antarctic to have a real adventure. And I I can. I think with the right mindset, I can take my dog for a walk, and it's an adventure. Like I think, I think adventure is down to appreciation of experience and the natural world that you, that you are in. So I've had adventures on my doorstep, um, and I've had days on expeditions that 
haven't been that adventurous. So it's yeah, I think adventure is more to do with 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 yeah with your attitude. Yeah, and that leads me on really nicely because I probably a difficult question again, but <laughs> what do you think about the current state of Antarctic exploration in inverted commas? Because it for me, you know, my own prejudice, sometimes it feels like <laughs> people are having more adventurous trips mm. on a weekend in Britain than some Antarctic expeditions. Yeah, oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think it's a difficult question because I think a lot of what drew me to Antarctica is a lot of what is still drawing people there now. Like it's got this this sort of inflated kind of kudos that, cut, that comes with it. The idea that you've done a climb, you've climbed a mountain in Antarctica, is way more impressive to most people than climbing a mountain in Scotland, way route in Scotland. And yet, I know that that that, and it's way beyond my level of expertise and and and, and experience. But Scottish winter climbing is some of the hardest climbing in the world, and way beyond what I could ever do. So, it's a really difficult one because I, I think a lot, and I get. There was a there was a lovely line. This was this was hanging out at a at a um, Russian camp on the Arctic Ocean in two thousand and three, and there was a guy, lovely guy there called Nicolas Mangasson, who used to work in French, obviously used to work in sort of Arctic Ocean logistics. He was based in Paris, and we were sat at this table in this Russian camp, you know, having a drinking a cup of coffee and, and a plastic cup and. Um, and this guy walked in. He basically just flown from Svalbard up to this camp, Barneo, uh, and then to the North Pole. And you know, kind of stood at the North Pole, flew back, helicopter back to camp, had a cup of coffee, flew back to Svalbard. So he basically did the North Pole in in a day. And he came in and was sort of raving about what he does. Like, oh, I've just been to the North Pole. It's my, you know, I've been to I've been to fifty something different countries now. You know, was just telling us what the pole was. Nicola at that point had worked with probably twenty Arctic Ocean expeditions, and and I mean, this is my second trip up there but I'd just been on my own on the on the sea ice for two weeks you know and had come back and was just sat having a coffee and this guy came in and kind of told us what it was like and you know walked out and, and Nicolas the sort of you know, French dude looked up and he went oh he was a he was a polar expert I was like what do you mean he said oh we say uh, l- less than two expeditions or more than 20 <laughs> and you're an expert <laughs> so <laughs> so I'm still an amateur so <laughs> um so I think yeah, gosh, it all depends on the on the project, and I, I, I love. I mean, like Leo's recent trip, like to me, that's that's fantastic, and and that kind of thing, like really pushing the boundaries of what's possible, and pushing the boundaries of how you travel and using kites to get to interesting places. And yeah, that's really exciting to me. The idea of another, you know, sort of sort of first X, you know. Irishman on a pogo stick to the South Pole like that I find that a bit tedious nowadays but maybe I'm just getting old and cynical <laughs> so what's the difference between the North and the South in terms of how expeditions tend to play out and Ooh. the challenge hmm I mean it, it, it's changed a lot in the last two decades the, the, you know, the, 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 the time that I've been doing stuff in these places and the Arctic Ocean, like there haven't been, I mean, maybe there's Borgas and Mike Horn's trip with with the boat and and doing the the sort of route they did, but other than that, like there haven't been that many 
properly progressive Arctic Ocean expeditions in, in recent years. Um, and part of that is because the ice is, is just disappearing. Um, I don't think it'd be possible to go from the Russian side anymore, you know, maybe in winter, in the dark. Um, so it's getting harder and harder to, to do, you know, anything pioneering on the Arctic Ocean in, in terms of sort of new um, feats and firsts and breaking records and all that kind of stuff. Um, whereas Antarctica is getting a lot busier. It's really, it's interesting. Um, and you, you've had in recent years a lot of people going down there for their first expedition, first polar trip, and going solo to the South Pole, which which ten years ago would have been unthinkable. Um, and there was a, you know, there there was a, a, a trajectory and a learning curve, and that seems to have shortened nowadays. Partly because the the, the you know the the standard route Hercules Inlet is so well proven and well known and well mapped, and the you know, nowadays everyone has a tracker with them, the yeah, logistics company know where they are. So it's sort of become more accessible. Antarctica has become, has become more accessible. The Arctic Ocean has become less accessible. It's really hard, like the logistics now, super hard to, to figure out. So I think that's how they've changed in, in recent years. Um, to me, the Arctic, you know, starting out 2001, felt more accessible because it was cheaper. To fly up through Russia versus going to Antarctica, which was mega six-figure budget. So, yeah, they've changed profoundly, and and I'm, I'm more interested. Actually, that's not true. I'm interested in both these places, but I I I really want to go back to the Arctic Ocean. Not not to drag a sledge or break a record, be the first to do anything, but just to just to experience that place again. Because I think, in some ways, it was probably wasted on the twenty six-year-old me and the 23-year-old me because I was out there trying to prove a point rather than f fully kind of engaging with this this place um, so it's it's magical the Arctic Ocean is really unique and it's also um, really hard <laughs> like it's it's very different to Antarctica in so many ways it's and most importantly for, for expeditions it's really humid you're, you're traveling over the sea there's open water so just into everything equipment clothing you know how you look after yourself it's much harder you ice everywhere if you get a sleeping bag full of ice after after a few weeks you know it's it's grim everything starts to get wet when it warms up in the later in the season so it's antarctica in, in many ways is a piece of cake compared to arctic ocean because it's so dry it's a desert down sleeping bags don't weigh anything lovely fluffy warm bed every night you know if you don't have that in the arctic ocean so they're, they're very different worlds in a lot of ways um, and they're both wonderful, and I, I feel very lucky to have, have spent the time that I have in both of them. Who makes the rules? <laughs> Who makes the rules? Yeah, a, a lot of people have tried, and that's one of the peculiar things about my world is that there is no governing body. I'm not, if I was an Ironman triathlete or a marathon runner or whatever, there, there would be a certain set of criteria and rules, and there isn't that in, in the polar world. Um, and therefore, there's been a lot of, um, there've been a, a lot of, uh, how can I say this delicately, politically, um, you know, overinflated claims over the years, and there, and there's also for some reason people still feel the need to kind of overegg what they've done, and I, you know, you consistently see people talking about, oh, we had minus eighty wind chill, you know, well, theoretically, uh, on the worst possible day, perhaps, but. 
not you know not when you were down there you were there in midsummer like that's that's just not gonna like you know you can see and you can see the data every day for south pole station you see the temperatures like it's not yeah so people seem to need to, to sort of over egg it for some reason um so there's, there's been this weird inflation um of what people are claiming um hmm, what else can I say about that in other ways it, it matters way less to me now like I used to get really hung up on the semantics and, and yeah, or were we supported or unsupported or assisted or unassisted or whatever that means. And I, to me now, like to, for anyone to do any sort of journey in these places, fantastic, like, you know, wonderful. Um, and unless, again, I think it's ego, like it matters less to me now. Um, Did, have there been moments, and I actually, I really don't know the answer to this, mm. where you've been criticised Oh, many. Yeah, t tons. Yeah, tons, tons, tons. I mean, my my North Pole trip 2004, uh, a lot of people say it doesn't count. There's a website, Adventure Stats, I think. Like, it, I think for a while it wasn't even listed because I didn't start from the land. And they're, they're like, oh, well, that's, that make, that's, it's not a full North Pole expedition unless you stop land. There's 20k of water that year. So, what we say, well, we need to go home, give up, or get the helicopter to drop me on the ice. Okay, well, I start from the ice. But that, that, discounted that trip thousand kilometers you know i clocked up probably more than that because it's all drifting but um so to, to me in my mind i walked solo to the north pole on my own for 10 weeks uh, you know it was an amazing trip i got one or two out of it um proper adventure proper challenge but yeah in some people's eyes it didn't count because i stopped from the land um so yeah i feel all sorts of stuff you know thrown at me over the years and uh, I, it doesn't really bother me that much now done some fun trips happy with that <laughs> yeah and i think maybe we might need to give some background on how the... I, i've i've also got it very wrong as well um 2003 i did um this i didn't have much money so i basically flew out to this russian camp you know temporary airstrip in the Arctic Ocean called barnia which is sort of roughly one degree south of the, the north pole 60 north miles um give or take because it's, it's drifting and they have to find the right ice that year but I, I skied, this was kind of a training trip, so I skied from there to the North Pole, um, which took about a week, and then basically to save money, rather than being picked up by helicopter, which what most people do, and flying back to Barnier, and then fly back to Svalbard, I skied back to Barnier, so I did this kind of round trip. So it was a couple of weeks on my own on the Arctic Ocean, and, and a really, like a really, really interesting challenge. But I'd, I'd had a couple of sponsors that year, and somebody sort of put out this press release like solo youngest solo to the north pole and it was the same year that Penn had it was out there going all the way from the canadian side and i came back and i was like oh brilliant i'm gonna be on the news like fantastic and and now looking back like it makes my toes curl like oh god like it was totally the wrong message that we we're putting out and we should have made it much clearer clearer that i'd really only done 120 miles versus 600 miles from the coast so I, I've messed up enormously over, over the years um, and made some wild claims of my own. So I think that's made me more, um, what's the right word, compassionate, tolerant towards young people starting out who kind of over egg own things because I've kind of been there and done that really. So, so I'm quite relaxed about all these days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. I've got lots of strong views on that. Save those. I think, I think interestingly, there are some parallels with climbing mountaineering and that the style is what really impresses me now and there are there was a German girl German lady Anya Blatcher who went solo to the South Pole last season from Birken Island so interesting route challenging point to start from did it and she's a really accomplished mountaineer so a lot of um, 
8,000 that's under, under a belt. And um, first trip in Antarctica. And I was like, oh, she's bitten off a big, there's a big one going solo from Berkner. And she just did it beautifully, like really smoothly, professionally, no fuss, no nonsense, no, no, no over-exaggeration. Um, so there are trips like that that impress me now. Um, and I think it's, yeah, it's kind of the style, the way in which you do it, the, the, the condition you're in at the, at the finish line. Yeah, that's, that impresses me. So, yeah, part of me still interested in it. <laughs> yeah, well, that's it. And, you know, that's you and Martin Hartley have both said yeah. that trips like Leo's impress mm. you. And mm. I think Martin used the term, some trips are just glorified camping holidays. Mm. But that's okay if that's all people want. Yeah. Yeah. It's not the reserve of the few. Mm. But success and failure are funny words. And they can be quite dangerous words. Mm. So in the context of things like, you know, the big trip, was that a success? Was that a failure? <laughs> is is yeah, anything... they're, 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 they're both. They're all both. I mean, every one of my big expeditions has been, I think everyone's been a failure. I don't think I've, I don't have ever done a trip where I've ticked every box I wanted to. And, and that's normally because I've been trying to do something difficult and, and in, in an environment where there are so many variables out of your control, outside your control. And, and, and also, Arctic Ocean North Pole is getting tougher every year. Like the ice is getting thinner and thinner and thinner and there's more and more water and it's just getting more and more sketchy. So I've like pretty much every one of my trips I've done, I can personally pick holes in it and, and, and this is this is where I fell short of what I aspired to do. Um, but in other ways, everyone's been a success because it's kind of brought me to where I am now. So I, yeah, I don't get hung up on it anymore. And, and um, in the big trip to Target, yeah, we had more food flown out, airdropped, we had a resupply. That that means we're no longer unsupported or unassisted or whichever, whatever semantic you choose. But ultimately, we did what we wanted to. And and, and if you look at Scott, Shackleton, Amundsen, they were all supported because they had teams with them, you know, helping them position their depots. And then the last team went to the bowl and turned around and came back. So, you know, we, we had our assistance by air rather than by pony or dog or tractor or whatever it was other men dragging sledges so yeah like if I zoom out far enough they've all been successful I've got no looking back not much I would have done differently um, but also if you zoom in everyone's every expedition has been a failure in some in some respects like I've never I've never nailed it I've never got to perfection and that and that is that's been part of the learning curve you know like I think for a long time that was what motivated me and um, Tarka and I came so close to that in Antarctica you know if, if we'd if we'd had half a day's more food in our sledges we wouldn't have had to call for help and uh, perhaps would have made it back to the coast and, and it would have been the you know like flawless embodiment of everything I was excited about at the time and and, and we fell short of that but now I'm okay with that um, and I'm I'm not I'm definitely, I think that trip really brought me face to face with my own perfectionism and also kind of forced me to, as the leader of that thing, because it was my fault we were both there, to, to get my priorities straight and to think, okay, we've got to get home in one piece here. And, you know, and, and I think I'd, in my own head, I'd probably downplayed the risk and the degree of exposure that we were facing. And you know, I think I said earlier on, Antarctica's a piece of cake compared to the North Pole, Arctic Ocean. 
but we were properly exposed. Like we, we, were, we were in a, in a bad way, physically, mentally, emotionally. We were knackered and we still had whatever, 800 miles left to go and starving and run out of food. And so that, so it was, a, it was, a, it was the sort of crux for me at that time uh, where I was, I sort of found myself on this perched on this boundary between being all the things I wanted to be bold, courageous, you know, innovative, pioneering, whatever, and being reckless. And, and I had to choose my next step pretty carefully. So that was a good, that was a good, good experience. <laughs> I grew up a bit on that trip. But at the time it must've been devastating. Felt or? like failure, felt like failure at the time. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it was gutting. Um, it was also gutting because it cost a lot of money to have that edible food. And that was basically all of the contingency in our budget and that was basically what I was going to pay myself at the end of this you know years of work I was up blowing it on this flight so so I came home skinned again <laughs> so it was like a compounded failure in many ways but but actually now looking back I, I, I'm you know decision I'm, I'm really proud of wouldn't have done any differently can you give us the briefest context on what what happened? Yeah. Yeah. So Taka and I, Taka Lepinia, wonderful friend of mine, extraordinary guy. Um, we uh, we set out in October 2013, so very early, early, early in the season, Antarctic season, to walk from the coast of Antarctica, Ross Island on the New Zealand side of Antarctica, to the South Pole, where we turn around and walk back to the coast again, like literally retrace our steps. So that was the exact route that that. Shackleton really pioneered on his Nimrod expedition, so exact route up the Beardmore Glacier, you know, to the pole, back down again, um, and the same route that Scott and his men died towards the end of. So we went down there to finish that, um, and our plan was to do it completely under our own motive power, dragging everything the whole way, so a sledge each, 200 kilos each at the start. Um, and on the way out, we left 10 depots we buried literally 10 caches of food and, and, and fuel the fuels just for our stoves so we can melt snow or to cook food um so we left these 10 depots on the way out left the last depot quite a long way from the pole thinking the sledge will be empty midsummer conditions will be perfect we'll be flying um we'll turn around at the pole we'll have broken the back of the journey we're heading for home should have a tailwind because we've been going into the wind for weeks um going downhill for parts of it literally so we thought well, we'll just be flying so we'll leave the last ever here we'll be fast and light bag the pole back again back to the coast and turned around at the pole we ended up doing a really long day it was like 18 hours or something in 53 50 something k um knackered from that and the weather started turning and it just got cold and windy and really poor visibility and we just we never sped up in the way that we'd anticipated we would and we realized pretty quickly we weren't going to get to this depot before we ran out of food so we for about a week eight days we sort of halved the rations we had left which was really grim and kind of compounded things because we we were just weaker and weaker and weaker and more and more knackered and everything so even your decision making slows down and it was just getting really dangerous and we kind of got to this final point where Tarka had been quite ill the day before with hypothermia I'd, I'd been pretty out of it the day before that. We were both going through these sort of peaks and troughs and Otago had frostbite in his thumb. So we were struggling and the weather really closed in and we we're basically in the tent. Uh, I think we stopped early. It's really foggy, foggy memories. I think we might have stopped early uh, one night, got the next morning, woke up the next morning, had our half a breakfast, really, really miserable. And the weather was terrible and 
I I realized I had to make a decision. Like we were two days travel from our depot, first depot, half a day's food left, weather was terrible, Tarka being hypothermic, had already had frost injury. Um, I was like, this is, this is, this is too risky. Like, you know, if, if we're super lucky, if we kind of roll the dice and everything works out perfectly, then we maybe we can somehow do another massive 50 something K day, get to the depot. Um, but there's no safety margin. We didn't have any more food. We had no emergency rations. We'd eaten everything. We had half a day's food left. That was that was it. So there was just no margin, no safety net. If we if we ballsed up, um, and I just decided I wasn't happy. To, I just felt it was reckless. So I thought, well, we can either quit, get picked up, call for a call for an aircraft, um, or maybe we can get some food dropped off with the plane that would rescue us in in in, a, in an emergency. So that's what we did. We had, had another week's worth of food flying out, like world's most expensive takeout. Um, and it was, yeah, it felt like failure. It was also fantastic because they not only brought brought a week's worth of freeze dried rations and energy drinks and things, but also they brought like a the pilot tree gave us this bag full of goodies. And I, I did not mention that on the website at the time, but we had like a bottle of Coke. Pringles, cream cheese, a, a cake. Someone baked at the back at the base camp, Union Glacier. Uh, so we basically had a day off and just had a day like gorging ourselves in the tent. So it was there was a kind of icing on on that, you know, silver 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 lining to that cloud. <laughs> so, yeah, stuffed our faces and then carried on back to the coast. Another six weeks, I think it took. Yeah, like that. <laughs> that must have been difficult not to get on the plane. Uh, it's it, strange. It wasn't. Um, it was just re- it was a really surreal moment because we hadn't really seen people. We we were deliberately um, kept ourselves to the, to ourselves at the pole. There's a big base there now. We we were invited in. The U.S. government were like, "You you welcome to it for a tour of the base." And but they've got heating and and a, and a cafe and you know and just I was like, "Nah, it's too too tempting." So we didn't really engage with people at the pole. We just turned around, got got away again, took a photograph, marked GPS. Um, and it was kind of weird. The, the pilot, so the pilot that dropped off our food, it's called Troy, Canadian guy, and he picked me up from the Arctic Ocean in two thousand four. So same pilot, and it just felt all felt quite serendipitous. And um, so we shook hands, and, you know. And I kind of realised when they took off, I was like, that's the first. Other than um, Tark and I, we were quite British. We didn't do a lot of hugging, and we 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 had one or two hugs in the whole trip after after some epic day. Um, but other than that, we didn't really have any co- physical contact between us. So I suddenly was like shaking this guy's hand. I was like, "Ooh, that was like first bit of human contact in, in by that by that point, three months. I think it was roughly two and a half, three months. Um, so it was kind of weird, weird moment, quite surreal. And then play, suddenly plane was gone again. The weather was kind of coming in and out. So they had to like literally have like holes in the cloud. The plane came in, land on the snow, disappeared again 10 minutes later. So it was just this weird, like oh, a little bubble we'd been in and suddenly been pierced very briefly and then disappeared. No, there was no no temptation to get on the plane at all. Probably because we just had a big bag of food and I just I didn't even watch take off. Back to the tent, start eating. <laughs> yeah, we get bogged down in jeopardy. I think when we talk about these stories, you know, we always talk about the jeopardy and what went wrong or when did you fall in the crevasse or whatever. But did you enjoy it? The trip. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, a, a lot of it, of course, was 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 type two fun. Like it was, 
every day was was very difficult um there were there were a few like weird moments where i'd listen to music sometimes during the day and put headphones in skiing along and you don't really have much contact you're always skiing one person's always navigating taking turns so you're, you're either leading or you're following and we'd stop every 90 minutes at the most to, to eat drink have a quick chat and then carry on again so you don't have much you most of the day is sort of in your own thoughts really and and it's quite can be quite claustrophobic especially the weather's bad and you your hood up collar up goggles mask everything you know, everything is closed up um and music on and i remember i think it was when we got to a, a, a feature called the gateway which is a little coal you have to get through to, to go onto the beardmore glacier and discover shackleton i was secretly bricking it i was so scared of the beardmore and crevasses like a week's worth of crevasse fields were just oh you know i'd heard all these horror stories about the beardmore shackleton's pony died because it found a crevasse and was, you know, so i was really scared and got to the gateway there's this long snow slope you can, you can ski up I mean, it's pretty hard work but you can ski up it with the sledge um you might zigzag a bit to get up to the top but it, it was like blue sky sun was shining it's just beautiful and Tarka was leading for one section and i'm just some i can't remember what song it was but some good tune came on in my headphones and i just stopped just look, looked at these you see this mount hope and i don't want the mountains on the right but you've got two mountains and a little column between and I was just, I had this like brief moment of like ski poles in the air, like, woo, like this is so cool. So there, there were moments like it was, it was peaks and troughs. Like there was never a day that was all right. It was either amazing or it was terrifying or grim. And, you know, so it was, it was huge highs and lows. And I think that's what makes these trips compelling. Like the, the, the range of experience you go to, like human experience, the, the, the fear and the elation and everything in between. And, and I've not encountered that in the same civilized world like i've never maybe i'm just a philistine but i've never seen a piece of art or heard a piece of music or theater or some performance of of some culture that has moved me in the way that these places have or these experiences in these places so i think that's why one of the reasons i kept going back um just the intensity and the scale range of, of, of of experience and emotion do you ever, again, I might be mirroring here, but do you, is there any sort of complex around people like me from my background don't do this sort of thing? <laughs> uh, hmm. Yeah, I, I think I, I think I've, I probably still get tarred with the posh, privileged. Of course, he's been able to go to Antarctica. Like, I couldn't. Um, and I go back to bang my drum about dad was a bricklayer. He was an orphan. I went to comprehensive. I've got C and two Ds at level. I've got no degree. I don't, I'm un- unemployable. I can't remember last I wrote a CV or had a paycheck. So, like, I, I personally feel that if if I can figure it out, then you can probably figure it out too. But it, but also that I don't sound like too too self flagellating but but that but again that's coming from a, from a place of privilege and if, if you were born in burundi then your chances of doing this kind of trip are, are, are inevitably way slimmer so i i appreciate that me saying if i can do it you can do it too is, is nonsense for m- many of most of the world's population but you know when you narrow it down and and and, and talk about i don't know kind of limit it to to Britain and British people and British young people wanting these sorts of trips. I actually think 
most of the barriers are in people's own heads. Like they're not, you know, it's really hard. It was really hard for me to do these things, but that was great. I, I relished that challenge and I learned a lot and grew a lot from it. Um, and yeah, I, I don't think, I don't want to go with that really. Yeah, like it's, it's, it's inevitably going to be difficult. And I also feel conflicted now when people ask me for advice and, and presumably have sort of read about me or looked at my Instagram or whatever and have thought, I want to do that, that, that looks cool. Um, and I sort of feel like saying, like the, the, the Instagram is not the same as my real life and, and there's a lot of really unglamorous hard work that goes on in the background to make the cool stuff happen and to get the cool photograph um, uh, or the world record or whatever it is. Um, so I sort of feel it's tough because I, in some ways I am proof that it is possible to do these things and to make a living out of out of expeditions. Um, but also I think the odds of that are, are, are just stacked so much against anyone. It's like wanting to be a pop star or, or a professional footballer or, you know, Formula One driver. It's not impossible because people do it. Lots of people are doing it, but they're at the very top of that of that pyramid of, of sort of aspiration and you know, work. Um, so I, I, yeah, I, 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 I feel this kind of conflict with like trying to inspire people and encourage people and say, go for it. And also trying to tell a cautionary tale of, of like, be careful what you wish for, because if you're, if you're going to do this, like this for me was 20 years of my life and, and, and 20 years of my life trying to do one thing. Um, so yeah. <laughs> And, you know, without diving into too much detail of it, it wasn't the expeditions that you make your living from, right? It's the stories that you tell. Yeah, exactly. And I, I, I stumbled into into speaking about these things. In, in, again, like in my early 20s, after that first expedition, 23, first failed expedition. And um, my first ever talk was to a school. And I was so, I was shy as a kid. And if you told me age 16, I'd be, making a living flying around the world standing up in front of big audiences with with no notes and talking for an hour i i said that sounds horrific like well, i don't want to do that <laughs> um so yeah i gave a talk to a school and i was so nervous i was like okay i'm just going to take loads of kit to distract them i'll take my big boots and my jacket and my sledge and my skis and tent and you know sleeping bag so i took all my clobber with me and sort of dressed up kids in the kit and loved that and but they they it went really well. And I suddenly realised that, and I didn't like school, so the idea of like going back to a school was pretty terrifying. But I suddenly realised, like for the first time ever, in the, in the big hall, the whole school, big assembly, all the teachers, that I was the expert. I've, I'd been somewhere no one else in that room had been, and therefore that gave me this authority that I'd never had before. So I thought, oh, this is interesting. And everyone wants to hear about this story. Oh, wow, okay, so I'll just tell the story. Um, so yeah, stumbled in speaking, and that and that's a big part of how I've made a living since since then. Um, and again, it's it's less glamorous than it than it sounds, and quite hard work and quite solitary, lonely life. Well, before twenty twenty, flying around the world, events all over the place, um, meeting people you're never going to meet again, having make polite conversation, go home again, knackered, jet lagged, do it again. So yeah, that's that's been a big part of my career. Um, I don't get paid to go on expeditions. That costs lots of money. So. And they're not actually that fun when you're there anyway. <laughs> what, the, the expeditions? Or, yeah. Yeah, mm, yeah, no. <laughs> can be brief moments, but they're mostly, 
mostly look. And someone, someone the other day asked me if I was an adrenaline junkie. I was like, no. Like these trips are long drudgery. Like it's, it's very low speeds. Like there is there is no adrenaline. It's just it's a long struggle. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like it's just been this like changing motivation that's on the same track from the boyhood search. For... Yeah. 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 Definitely. And I, I'm. I'm much more interested, like I've got a plan for, it's probably going to be January 2022, um, to take a group of students to Antarctica. And um, and I want to find different specialists, so like a young photographer, young filmmaker, young artist, young writer, young entrepreneur, young scientist, match them all with amazing mentors, take them all down there. It's going to be a short trip. It's not going to be an expedition. We're not going to be dragging sledges or anything. We'll be, we'll be looked after and we might, you know, ski for a day to get some mountains or a glacier and spend one night in a tent but I want it to be accessible I don't want there to be any suffering and and, and it's most importantly it, the whole thing is around storytelling and that that's I think that's the thing that's interesting me now like the power of of telling stories and how humans are inspired by stories and, and not by data and there's there's so much really alarming data coming about climate science, climate science and often the best scientists are the worst storytellers so, so it feels to me like there's a, there's a gap there that needs to be bridged and the other part of that plan is to me there is this really uniquely utopian side to, Ant to Antarctica specifically which is it's a continent, it's massive it's the size of China and India but nobody owns it, like it's competitive Everywhere else on the planet, it is governed remarkably well. It's the largest nature reserve on the planet, and we haven't trashed it collectively. Yes, it's melting, but we have. There's no litter. There's no, there's no rubbish dumps. There's no really a war down there. Um, there's no drilling. No mining. Um, no towns or cities. What you know. Um, and the thing I love, one of the things I love about Antarctica is when you arrive there, no one checks your passport because it doesn't matter where you came from. And the, the only thing that matters if you are there with other human beings is how well you can get on with your fellow human beings. And, and you know, the what it says on your passport or the flag that was flying over the bit of earth you were born on just becomes like gloriously irrelevant. So I think to me, like in 2020, that feels like a really important story to tell about, about kind of zooming out of it. And we're all getting, you know, whether you know in the UK right now, there's all this bickering going on about borders and boundaries and immigrants, and, you know, and same in America, same in so many countries. And I just feel like if you zoom out, of course, again, I'm descending a cliche, but we're all human beings on the same bit of rock floating through the universe. And I think we need to figure out how to get on better. So that's one of the things I want to do with this, with this story. Because Antarctica is, you know, it's a difficult climate and it sort of forces you to, to rely on other people and ask for help and, and get on, collaborate. So that's part of my, and maybe I'm just being a sort of wide-eyed hippie, but that's that's part of the next plan. <laughs> no, because what's interesting is as a young boy, you were inspired by a group of explorers mm. and you said yourself, you know, it was all about biceps and beards and flag planting. <laughs> you... I'm, st I'm still into biceps and beards. I mean, that's a big part of my, <laughs> my motivation, but I, I, I work on both most days. <laughs> <laughs> but so... That's totally thrown me. <laughs> you now have that weight of responsibility mm. of being, you know, this generation mm. of those explorers and to inspire the next, you know, whoever it is that goes and does these amazing things. Yeah. What's the message you want to convey? Mm. I think 
you know, how to, how to condense it into into a pithy one-liner. It would be. I think the message I, I I want to convey is about human potential, um, and I don't just mean it in a sort of athletic sense, but just our our individual um, sense of agency, like our individual ability to make things happen, and 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 collectively to sort of come together and change things for the for the better. So I think that's that's why that's the message. Yeah. Nice. Okay. <laughs> The two questions I always ask everyone: What scares you? <laughs> uh, I, I had a brush in 2015 with brain injury. I, had a, I fell off my bike, um, knocked myself out, wearing a helmet, smashed the helmet on my road bike. Quite a fast ascent. I, I don't know what happened. I can't. I've got a half hour blank in my memory, but I was knocked out. The person at the time called an ambulance. I luckily was taken to. This was in Oxfordshire, so John Radcliffe Hospital, where they have a brand spanking new at the time CT scanner so they put me in the scanner I thought they were going to send me home with a concussion and be like yeah, don't be a silly boy and they're like no you've got a minor subarachnoid or minor traumatic subarachnoid hemorrhage and this was in A&E by this stage it was a Saturday night in A&E which was never fun so it was getting quite busy and the young who was doctor consultant like just walked off after he said that I had my phone so I'm lying there in any so I googled subarachnoid hemorrhage and it was like survival rate 50% yeah like and I was like oh my god and I ended up staying in hospital for two or three nights under observation and then sort of sent home saying uh, you've got to take a week off and don't watch TV don't read don't do anything like you, you can't do anything with your brain for a week. I was like, what? How, how do I? How do I do that? And then not much guidance after that. They're just like, we have to wait and see what happens. Um, I saw my GP after a fortnight. He was like, oh, this is fascinating. Has he said has your personality changed? And I was like, I, I don't think so. But how? Yeah, I mean, maybe that was maybe that was when I overcame my ego, like like hitting my head hard enough. I don't, I don't know. But so yeah. So what scares me? Um, brain injury. Um, I before that accident, what scared me was was physical incapacitation, was breaking my back, being in a wheelchair, being un, unable to to engage with the world physically in the way that I've been lucky enough to. And and I after that accident, I I was like I would much rather be quadriplegic, with my character, my memories, um, all of the things that I treasure in my brain with those intact rather than hit my head hard enough that I lose all of that like that that was that was really profound like I've always thought well I take everything away take it you take or take the house take the money take everything I'll, I'll get it back but memories you can't do that and that that was like whew. so brain injury uh, well, <laughs> I'm avoiding the tangent but of all the things you've done in all of the places you've done it the thing that's brought you closest to was on the road uh, in England. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and and I, I I've genuinely had, and I lived in London for twenty years. Um, I I had more near death experiences cycling in London than I ever have on on whatever it is now seven thousand kilometers worth of skiing on the Arctic Ocean or Antarctica. So yeah, so I think risk is 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 a like risk is everywhere and and constant if you're alive and a human always at risk of something happening and you've got no control over almost all of the factors that, that, that come to play um, and secondly that it, it's kind of relative and yes there were risks in going to Antarctica or going solo on the Arctic Ocean but to me they were justifiable um, so I'm not yeah I'm not a thrill seeker by any means 
Cool. Last question. What gives you hope? What gives me hope? Hmm. Um, all sorts of things. I, I, I've sort of, one of my lockdown achievements this year has been becoming an early riser. Like I've always, I think left to my own devices, certainly before I got married, I, my inclination was to work late. And I kind of prided myself on that in some way. It's like, oh, I'm up two in the morning working on this sponsorship proposal, this spreadsheet for Antarctica, whatever it was. And and I therefore would like wake up late and then, you know, just sort of cycle. Um, and okay, lockdown, right, I'm going to get up early and we go set alarm for six, you know, kind of seize the day. And I've, I've done that enough now that that's now my thing. I just wake up early. Um, and I, I love that. Like I love, I, I, I must be so annoying um, as a husband because I sort of like get out of bed and like bring it on like I've got, I've got another day like to me like like get up in the morning it's like it's like when you buy a new notebook you're fresh like oh brilliant like what am I going to write in here um, so yeah for that gives me hope getting up in the morning sunrise um, I'm lucky we live in the countryside now beautiful nature outside um, and what else gives me hope um, I think trying sort of examples I mean sort of positive kindness I think you can boil it down to kindness and and if you look for it it's everywhere and it happens all the time and and, and it's something we can all do more of and it's yeah I don't, if that doesn't sound too trite or naff um <laughs> What's it say on the wall behind me? <laughs> right, yeah, I've got an Anthony. It's a prince, Anthony Burrell, who does these wonderful big block prints. It says, "Work hard and be nice to people." So yeah, I try and I try and remember that some of the time. Um, but yeah, I think it's kindness, um, and uh, yeah, it's it's in some ways this you, you could see this as an incredibly depressing time to be alive um, on a, on a global level. Um, in other ways, um, it's, I think I still think it's really exciting, and and I still think it's yeah, uh, waffling a bit here, but um, yeah, kindness gives me hope. Seeing someone helping someone else out, someone smiling at someone else, stranger smiling at a stranger, and some smiling back, you know, like that. Yeah, that inspires me. Nice. We'll leave it there. <laughs> Thanks for listening. For more information, visit theadventurepodcast.co.uk. The podcast is hosted by Matt Pycroft and produced and distributed by Pip Saunders, Alex Hall and Acast. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email us at info at theadventurepodcast.co.uk and please do leave us a review on iTunes. They make the world of difference um, and you can keep in touch on Instagram at theadventurepodcast. 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.